reading from the New Testament is going to be from the book of Philippians, chapter 1. Philippians is in the New Testament between uh, Ephesians and Colossians. So it's chapter 1, verses 18 to 26. Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 to 26. It's titled, To Live is Christ. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labour for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Glenda. Good morning, everybody. Well, I'm not Darren, and so that's a shame, but I am Sam. (laughs) So uh, Darren was meant to be preaching, but he's unwell. We were meant to be going through, and we only have two weeks left of John. Wow. So hopefully we'll pick that up back up very soon, but we only have two weeks, and we're taking a little bit of a break from John for one week into Philippians. I hope it's a happy detour. Let me pray, and then we'll get into that passage. Heavenly Father, it's your word that we come before each week, and so this week is no different. We come needy, and you have everything that we need. We come ignorant, and you have all the knowledge that we need. You have all the wisdom that we need. We come aimless, and you give us a vision for our lives that is so glorious. And we pray that you would implant that on our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this text has had a a kind of unusually significant impact in my life. Um, All Scripture is great, of course, But some passages are particularly meaningful to you. I'm sure you all have have had that kind of experience. So if you can indulge just a little bit of autobiography, a couple stories, just as we build in and we get to this passage. First story is when I was growing up, um, I'm the youngest of four boys, so three older brothers. And what that meant for me is I don't ever get my own room. So I have to, I get, I get to rotate through the older brothers and share um, rooms with all of them. I didn't mind that. I actually enjoyed that. Um, and there was a time when I was around, I think, 11 or 12, sharing a room with my eldest brother, Matt. He would have been 17 or 18. He'd left school. He was an apprentice builder at the time. 
And I was sharing a room with him, and in that time, he began in that moment to dedicate himself to memorizing Scripture. So he would, large, large chunks, small verses, I would hear him as a young boy, listening to my oldest brother, memorizing Scripture at night. As we go to bed, as we go to sleep, he's just constantly saying the Bible. And it's hard to tell, you know, hard to know what impact that would have on a young young man's life, hey, to, to see my older brother who I looked up to um, just role modeling for me like that. I don't look up to him as much anymore because he's actually quite short, but I, I grew up much taller than him. But I still look up to him spiritually. He's a, a very godly, godly man. Of all the passages I heard him memorizing at night, this one gripped me the most and it just stuck in my head. Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's hard to know why that would just like, it's not hard to know actually, is it? I mean, it's powerful prose. It's an amazing turn of phrase. It's catchy. It's simple. I'm a simple guy. I like simple things. It's, 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 con- it's condensed. But the content of it, like it's a gripping vision, isn't it? To live. It's just simple. Christ. To die will be gain. I loved it. I was thinking about how grateful I am for that experience, just in preparing for this just yesterday. Thinking, that, that, that is, I, I feel so blessed and so, I think, just blessed by the Lord to have had that kind of experience. Young men in our day, I know, just often don't have that from older brothers. And young men today are looking for role models. They're looking for, in a culture that it's kind of, it's, you, know, it, it, you know, it might sound like whinging, but it's confusing for young men today to know what it actually means to be a man or to grow up in a mask. What does it mean to be masculine? What does it mean to grow up like that? And, and it's not that guys don't therefore have role models. I think young guys are looking for role models and they will seek them where they find them. And often, sadly, they'll go online. Now, there's good things to find online, but there's also very unhelpful things to find online, role models. So, I don't know, hands up if you've heard the name Andrew Tate. Just, I'm just curious who's, okay. So, God bless you if you haven't, that's, (laughs) don't go Googling. But anyway, um, but there's a guy who's become a role model for millions of young men. Now, you, might, you, you will find some truth, but you will find a role model which basically will say, here's a vision for your life, and it is essentially women, it is essentially money, it is cars, it is houses, and it is fame, and it's empty. Much better, I would say to the young men in this congregation, you will find much better role models amongst the godlier older men in this church you'll actually find a far greater and more glorious calling for your life in the Bible. The second story is this. Fast forward till I'm about 18 or 19 years old. I got introduced to the preaching ministry of a man named John Piper. And I watched two sermons that he preached, and he preached two, thou- two sermons at this, at this event to thousands of of young people around about the age that I was when I was listening to it. Thousands of them. And the, the title of these two kind of sermons together, 
The title was Don't Waste Your Life. Don't Waste Your Life. And it was this kind of call to young people my age to, for the glory of God and the good of all the peoples around the world and for your own joy, give your life to these kinds of things. And his, his text for the first sermon was, to live is Christ, to die is gain. In the second sermon, he began with these words. I've never forgotten these words. I used to kind of know them off by heart. I listened to it so many times. I played this sermon to, I've played it to my three oldest children. When they turn 13, we watch this sermon together. And the sermon begins with these words. John Piper says this, You don't have to know a lot of things in order to make a huge difference for the Lord in the world. But you do need to know a few things that are great and be willing to live for them and die for them. People that make a difference in the world are not people who have been, who have mastered a lot of things. They are people who have been mastered by a very few things that are very, very great. If you want your life to count, you don't have to have a high IQ, you don't have to have a high EQ, you don't have to be smart, you don't have to have good looks, you don't have to be from a good family or from a good school, you just have to know a few basic, simple, obvious, unchanging, glorious things and be gripped by them and be willing to lay down your life for them. So what are those things? Well, a good place to start for me was Philippians 1.21. For me to live will be Christ, right? To die, gain. If that is true for my life, I'm convinced I will not have wasted my life. I won't get to the end of my life and think I have wasted it. And that's the hope for this sermon for us this morning. It's kind of a biblical God's vision for our lives. Ever since having children, um, I think parents, you get aware that actually I'm not the only one that has vision for my children's lives, you know. You look around, you're like, you, you become sensitive and aware that, oh, actually, it looks like Nike has vision for my children's lives, you know. Hollywood has a vision for training and discipling my children that their lives would look like this. Advertising, they just like the hyperdome, you know, they have a vision for my children's life that it will look and feel like this. They're compelling visions at times, maybe convincing, alluring, tempting. And if God's vision is not laid before us constantly, we will fall into what would end up being a wasted life. So here it is. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. James Montgomery Boyce says, Philippians 1.21 cuts like a surgeon's scalpel to the heart of Christianity. And so we have it in our kitchen. Sienna painted it for me. Philippians 1.21, for me to live will be Christ and to die gain. We all live with some kind of version of that. We don't actually kind of get to avoid the question of, for me to live is what? You know, and depending where you are in life and where you walk around in our culture, you'll find different kinds of answers to that. If you go to the university, the student might be saying, well, for me to live is to, to, to pass with honours, to, to kind of get great grades and to get into that program that I want to get to. That is what it is for me to live. For me to live is to make my parents proud. For me to live is to party. 
or not do much at all. You go into the city and you ask the businessman or businesswoman, what is it for you to live? Well, for me to live is this career. For me to live is to make something of myself. For me to live is all those kinds of things. You go into the suburbs and say, what is it? And they might say, for me to live is this nice house with a nice family, with a bit of money for retirement and a few kids. That's what it is for us to live. You go to the coast and you go, what is it for you to live? For me to live is surf. I want to catch waves. For me to live is entertainment. Or for me to live is just to look good. You go to the retired couple and they say, well, for me to live now is to golf. For me to live is to just rest and relax. I've earned it. Some years ago, I was, um, it was in the same week that I saw these two kind, of, two kind of clips came across my world. I don't know if they were that viral, but they were viral enough to come across my screen. Um, and it was, it was striking to me the, the, the contrasting difference between these two views of life and death. The first video that I saw was an interview with Ronda Rousey. Anyone know Ronda Rousey? The UFC mixed martial arts um, fighter. She was undefeated up until this moment. Celebrated as one of the most dominant sports people in the whole world. She'd started appearing in movies and modeling, etc. Then in Melbourne, 2015, she fought Holly Holmes and suffered her first ever loss. And she got beat down, right? Jaw broken, knocked out unconscious. And this was Ronda Rousey, like the undefeated, un unbeatable Ronda Rousey. A few months later, she's in an interview with Ellen DeGeneres. And she's describing with tears how she felt in the moments after losing her first fight. She says, I was in the corner of the medical room and she said this to, to Ellen. She said this, I was thinking this, what am I anymore if I'm not this? And I was literally sitting there and thinking about killing myself. And that exact second, I'm like, I'm nothing. What do I do anymore? And no one gives a about me anymore without this. Amazing. But if for you to live is to be undefeated, the question is, what happens when you're defeated? If to live is anything in this world, you open yourself up to that, don't you? What about when you don't have that anymore? So the other video was a speech by Monty Williams, who's an NBA coach. You've probably never heard of him. I'm a big NBA fan, so I do. Um, and his wife, his wife, the week before this video came out, was driving when an SUV cut across the center line of the highway that she was on, hit her car and killed her, leaving him with their five young children. And the video was from his eulogy at his wife's funeral. And he said this, life is hard. It is very hard. And that was tough. But we hold no ill will toward the Donaldson family, who is the one who killed his wife. And we as a group, brothers united in unity, should be praying for that family because they grieve as well. So let's not lose sight of what's important. God will work this out. My wife is in heaven. God loves us. God is love. And when we walk away from this place today, let's celebrate because my wife is where we all need to be. And I'm envious of that. We didn't lose her. 
when you lose something, you can't find it. I know exactly where my wife is. I'll miss holding her hand. I'll miss talking with my wife. Most of the times, we didn't do anything. We'd just be at, house, at the house sitting around doing nothing. And I'm going to miss that. Let's not lose sight of what's important. God is important. What Christ did on the cross is important. Now, I don't know much about um, Monty Williams and all of that, but I do recognize that that kind of speech comes from someone, I think, who has come to the, that place in their heart where, well, to live is Christ, to die, that is gain. One thing we all have in common in this room some of the things in common. One thing in common, this is probably an obvious thing to say, is that we all have the rest of our lives ahead of us, right? It's that old cliche, today's the first day of the rest of your life. But it actually is. We're all here and we have the rest of our lives. How are we going to spend it? What differs is how long we have. Hey, that changes. Some of us decades, some of us not. What changes also is how hard those years are going to be. Some of us are going to have hard years ahead. Some not as hard. But what we all have is those years ahead. And the question this morning is how will we spend it? Will we waste it or will we not waste it? What is the meaning going to be of it? Well, let's get into our passage. Paul writes from prison. He's writing to a church in Philippi, a church that he dearly, dearly loves. And so verse 18, it's actually the second half of verse 18, Paul begins with these words. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. Now, if you have your Bibles open, look up the verse that's just above that. You'll be helped if you have your Bible open. The previous sentence Paul just wrote, and in that I rejoice. Now, that was present tense, right? And Paul is speaking about practical circumstances which do not lend themselves to rejoicing. He's in prison for one. He's on trial. He doesn't know how this, is, this trial is going to end for him. He acknowledges that people have been um, preaching and, and doing it in a way that would harm him. He acknowledges that things have happened to him, but what they do is that they serve to advance the gospel. And so Christ is preached. And so Paul says, and so I rejoice. That's amazing. That's amazing. In circumstances that don't lend themselves to it, he says, I rejoice. I think it's even more amazing, the next sentence, though, that he will say, and yes, I will rejoice. Right? It's one thing to look back and to go, I went through all of that, but I can see that the gospel is working out and, and it's advancing, and so I, I can rejoice in that things that happened in the past. But to look forward into the mysterious future, which you do not know what's going to happen, and say, you know what, I will also, future tense, rejoice. Paul is on trial. What might happen here, he does not know. It could, it could end in his release or his execution. But he's saying either way, in the words of the great song, it is well with my soul. You know, when peace like a river attendeth my way, peace, or when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. So verse 19, he says, for, so I will rejoice for reason, because I know that through your prayers 
and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, I don't think that that turn out for my deliverance is, is actually talking about, I'm going to get out of prison, I'm going to get away, get out of all of this, and there's not going to be any trouble. I think it's more likely he's speaking about spiritual deliverance on the final day. On the final day when Christ returns, he will be vindicated. Why? Because Paul uses a particular word there for deliverance, sozo, which he only ever uses for spiritual, supernatural, in the end, salvation on Judgment Day. So it's likely that's what he means. Secondly, he's actually quoting Job. Another, if you know the Old Testament, he is the, the, the innocent sufferer of the Old Testament, isn't he? And here's Paul in prison. And he's the innocent sufferer of the Old Testament, and Paul quotes the exact same words from the Greek version of the Old Testament, where, where, where Job said, though he slay me, talking about God, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. Then he says this, this will be my salvation. This will be my salvation. Paul says, this will turn out for my deliverance. But it's the same Greek words. He's quoting Job. Job's friend, Zophar, friend, um, has been coming at him and saying, Man, Paul, uh, Job, you've got some secret sin, that's what's going on, and you need to apologize for that, that's why you're suffering so bad. And Job is saying, I just wish I could stand before God, because He knows me, and I wish I could make my case before Him, because He sees everything, He knows everything, and I just know that I will be vindicated on that day, I will be delivered. And then, so that's in the future. And so Paul's saying, I think in the future, one day I will stand before God and I know that I, will, I, will I want to make it to that day where I can stand before God. No matter what everyone else has said about me and against me, I will be vindicated, I will be justified, I will be saved on that day, I will be delivered. Now, how is he going to get to that day? How does he know? How does he know he's going to get from prison to that day? Two things he says, two reasons. First, through their prayers, right? He says, for I know that through your prayers. Isn't that amazing? The Apostle Paul is drawing on the prayers of this church and he says, one of the reasons I'm confident that I will make it to that day and I will be delivered is because I know you pray for me. Amazing. That's why we pray. That's why we give time to prayers. There is prayerlessness in churches everywhere, in Christians. But may it not be, may we not be a prayerless church for one another. I think it's awesome that they're even praying for Paul. I think we can get the idea that man, some people don't really need our prayers. You know, it's like, he seems like he's got it all kind of figured out. He's, you know, we just read the story, he's singing in jail. It's like, I think he's fine. I think we'll pray for, for other people, you know. He's writing the New Testament. You know, none of us have written New Testament, written blogs and tweets, but not, not New Testament. Like, does Paul need our prayers? And Paul's like, like I just draw on that reality. You pray, you pray for me. The second way he knows he's going to make it to that day is the help, he says, of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit helps Paul. It's not just that the Holy Spirit helps Paul, though. I think the Holy Spirit is the help. Like, He's there. He's with Paul. In a sense, the Holy Spirit is the answer to the prayers 
of the Philippians. They are praying for Paul to make it to that end, and God, by His Holy Spirit, comes and helps Paul along the way. God uses their prayers to provide Paul in prison with fresh supplies of the Spirit to ensure his endurance to the end. Verse 20. So then he says this, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. So he says, here's my eager expectation, here's my eager hope in all of this, in all my life, here's what I long for. Again, we all have versions of this. What are you, you can think to yourself, okay, what are my eager expectations, my eager hopes in my life? G.K. Chesterton said this, he said, when, when men choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing. They then became cap- become capable of believing in anything. Right, you replace God as your eager expectation and hope in your life, you replace it with something else. And so what is Paul's? Paul puts, puts it first in a negative way. This is what I don't want to happen. And then puts it in a positive way. This is what I do want to happen. Negatively, he says this. First, that I will not be at all ashamed. Now, probably everyone here has experienced some kind of shame. We know we're kind of familiar with shame. The person who, you know, maybe you got up in the front of the class at school and you, you forgot your lines and you were just like, oh, no. Um, I feel that every week. <laughs> um, so, you know, you, like, yeah, so you feel suddenly in front of people who you care about and you want them to think well of you and suddenly you just make a fool of yourself and you feel that kind of shame. I think we see it all too regularly on our TV screens, that thing that we are all, it's an excruciating thing to witness, and that is the public apology from a public figure. Isn't that an awful thing to have to watch someone do? Just grovel in front of the media and say how sorry they are and how humble they are and how humiliated they are and I'm ashamed of my actions and I hope that you can all forgive me if I've offended you in any way and it's the most ridiculous kind of spectacle in all of television. Maybe that's too harsh. Paul thinks, so Paul thinks future to the day that he'll stand before Christ One day I'll stand before him and I will not be ashamed before the one whose opinion actually matters to Paul. I won't be ashamed. I won't have gone through all this suffering for nothing. I won't have to be ashamed of it. I won't have preached things that aren't true. I won't be ashamed of my preaching. Your prayers will have been answered. My sufferings will be vindicated. God will keep all of His promises to me. I will stand before God on that day and I have nothing to be ashamed about. So if it's not shame, what will it be? But, so it was negative, eager expectation and hope. I don't want that to happen, but what? But that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. So that's, that's amazing, isn't it? So the opposite of Paul saying, I do not want to be ashamed, he doesn't say, instead of that, I want to be honoured. I'll be glorified. I'll be made much of, right? You would think that would be the opposite, wouldn't you? What is the opposite? Christ will be honoured. Christ will be glorified. Christ will be magnified. The opposite of Paul being ashamed is Christ's honour. And he says, that's my eager expectation 
my eager hope in my life. Where on earth could that come from? Well, I think it comes from love, doesn't it? We want to honor that which we love. If we have a whole bunch of self-love, we're going to want to self-honor. You know, we will want the honor. But if our love is directed towards God Himself, then it's irrelevant to us how honored we are, but oh, that He would be honored. And, and Paul says, that's the favorable outcome in my life. That's my eager hope and my expectation is that God is honored in my body. And he says, in my body, whether by life from, or death. So I have this body, Paul says. It lives. It will one day die. Something could happen here. But it's irrelevant to me as far as my goal, which is the honor of God. He can be honored in my life. But Paul says, I also know that he could be honored in my death. And that's good too. Wow. Brothers and sisters, there's a particular way to live and a particular way to die that makes Christ look great. As he is. How? Well, that's verse 21. Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Do you see the question it's answering? How will Christ be honored in my body in life and death? Well, to live will be Christ, to die will be gain. So first, living. Christ is honored in my living when for me to live is Christ, to me. It's personal, isn't it? I think Paul would say, I don't care what everybody else does. You can live for whatever you like. You can get your, all your material possessions and your, and your women and, your, and your, 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 your buildings and all your money and all of that. But for, 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 me, for me, to live will be Christ. To live. That's a broad category, isn't it? You go, well, what about this part? No, I just said to live. Like if that requires living, like breathing... Yep, that includes that. Yeah, but what about this part? Is this, to, is this for Christ? Yeah, but am I alive? Yeah, okay, well, it includes that. To live is about Him. It is for Christ. It is to Christ. It is from Christ. I get my life from Christ. It's all for Him. If I exist, it's Christ. If I'm breathing, it's Christ. Later, he says in chapter 3, verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Right, it's Galatians uh, 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, Christ is not just a compartment of Paul's life. He is his life. Um, it's literally how it is in the, in the Greek. It, just, it doesn't actually have is there. It just says, for to me to live, Christ. It's like nothing in between it. The commentator John Eady puts what Paul's saying like this. He says, the preaching of Christ is the business of my life. The presence of Christ, the cheer of my life. The image of Christ, the crown of my life. The Spirit of Christ, the life of my life. 
the love of Christ, the power of my life, the will of Christ, the, the law of my life, and the glory of Christ, the end of my life. If Paul traveled, it was on Christ's errand. If he suffered, it was in Christ's service. When he spoke, his theme was Christ. When he wrote, Christ filled his letters. That's the Christian life, isn't it? I don't even think, oh man, that's Paul, you know. But that's the Christian life. Beware, I think, of minimalist Christianity. Um, you know, minimalism, that kind of movement where in art, where it's very, just keep it mere, you know, not much. <clears throat> in life, you have minimalism in life, you know, just have a few things, don't get sucked into the materialism of the world. Well, that works in art and life maybe, but certainly not with Christ. And I worry that Christians in our day settle for minimalist Christ. Basically, my life is pretty normal, like with the world. But there is a sprinkling of Christ, a bit of church attendance, a little bit of spirituality mixed in with what is basically a secular existence. Paul wouldn't recognize it. I don't think he would even make, he could even make sense of it. About Christ? Him? Treat Him like that? So to live is Christ, Paul says, and then on the other side then, to die is gain. Which logically follows, doesn't it? Death is only a threat to us to the degree that it takes away from us the things that we love. Which is why, you know, if you replace the word Christ with anything else, you can't finish the sentence the same way, hey, right? For me to live is something, okay, then is to die gain? If, if, to, if to live is to finish my degree, you can't then say, and to die is gain. No, because you, you won't get to. For me to live is recognition from others. Well, to die is not gain. For me to live is achievement. Well, then death is not gain. If to live is anything confined to this world, death cannot be gained because death is an exit from that thing. But what if to live is Christ? It's actually the only word that can make sense of that sentence, hey. If to live is Christ, why, would, why is death gain? Because it's the opening of the doorways into the presence of Him. It's... It's enjoying Him forever. It's more of that which you love most and more than anything, that your greatest treasure. And so it's, it's gain. It's the greatest profit you'll ever have is that day when you die. So this is how you test. If for you to live is Christ, ask ourselves this, work backwards. Right now, do you see death as gain? You can work it backwards. That's not easy to answer, actually. That takes a fair bit of reflection, I think, at least in my heart, because I've got a lot that I would love to live for. I enjoy just being here. I want to stay. <laughs> um, I love being a pastor here. I love you all. I, I love to see what the work of God amongst our lives together. I don't want to miss out on that. Um, I think about my family. I don't... There'd be things like this. I would love to be married to Kylan for many, many, many years. 
I'd love to get very old with her. I think we'd be great at like 90. It'd be fun. <laughs> I can picture it. I want to see my boys continue to grow up and become men of God. I don't want to miss that. To lead their own families one day. I want to see my daughters grow up. I don't want to miss out on that. I want to see them become women of God. And maybe, as much as I hate to admit it, I would like to walk them down the aisle one day to some guy who better be a very godly man. And, <laughs> and, um, and I would love to see them as mums, you know. I wouldn't want to miss out on that. I wouldn't want to miss out on being a granddad, you know, and sitting grandchildren on my lap and tell them all about all the faithfulness of God throughout my life. I would love to be a great granddad. That might happen because I started early. And so that's possible. And that would be amazing too. I wouldn't want to miss out on any of that. I desire all of that. But death is gain. How? Because we get the one thing that matters more than anything else in the world. That is Christ. From verses 22 to 26, Paul unpacks, I think, to live is Christ and to die is gain for what his life is going to look like. So Paul says in verse 22, for if, I'm, if I am to live in the flesh, what does that mean? That means fruitful labor for me. So the if is hypothetical for him. Okay, let's just suppose for a second, I go on living. I get out of prison and I get to go on living. What's it going to look like? Well, to live is Christ. So what, how will that play out? He says, it means fruitful labor for me. So he's not thinking, if I get out of prison, I'm going to make life about me from now on, right? I'm going to get YOLO. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make it all about me. I'm going, to, I'm going to rest and relax. I've done my time. I've been in prison. He's like, if I get out of here, it's going to be, I'm going to get to work. It is going to be fruitful labor for me. Ultimately, it's for Christ. I'll go on preaching Christ. Because for me to live is Christ. I'm going to spread the good news of Christ. I'm going to plant churches which have Christ as their head and come under his rule. So that's if he goes on to live, but then, he, then, then Paul, notice he shifts back to, well, dying again as gain. He says, yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ. For that is far better. I think mean, he's actually making a decision right now, will I live or will I die? But it isn't, it's a great kind of thought experience. Like, yet, yeah, like in my heart, it's actually, a, it's a wrestle. There's a tension. That's, that's convicting, isn't it? Like Paul genuinely has a tension with, what actually do or would I prefer? And his answer is, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. It's like, there's a genuine tension between life and death for me. But then he lands on his preference, which is what? It is to die. He says, my, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. For why? That is far better. You don't just say, because that is better, right? Well, that is just like, that's a little better. He uses the super double superlative it is. It is far better. So now remember, so remember the question that we're asking. Paul is asking, how can Christ be honoured in my body whether by life or by death. And he has said, 
to live is Christ, to die is gain. So I honour Christ in my body, in my dying, if I consider dying gain. But why would you consider dying gain? Well, Paul tells us now, because it's to depart and be with Christ. Because in that moment, you lose everything and you are greeted by death. You will rejoice and realize this is better. I am, I am with Jesus. And being with Jesus is the whole point of the Bible storyline. The whole question is how can sinful people dwell with a holy God? And Jesus makes that way by dying on the cross in our place for our sin so that sinful humans can be reconciled to Him and be with Him forever. That's the offer of the gospel. Now, I'll say something probably pretty obvious. But if you don't want Jesus, you're not going to want heaven. You know? Sometimes I say this to, to unbelieving um, friends who, who think like, you know, I'm not interested in your gospel, I'm not interested in your Bible, I'm not interested in that, but at the end of the day, I think it'll all work out for me. If it all happens, I'll get into heaven. I ask you, you won't want to be there. You won't want to be there because you're not interested in the things of heaven. You'll actually, you won't like it, you know, because it's all about Jesus and you're right now telling me, professing, I want nothing to do with him. You know, my parents, you know, my, my dad was a pastor and so we would have to, you know, have to, but we would have to go to different people's houses, you know, at different times for Sunday lunches and things like that. Just as kids, it was like, ah, oh, okay, whose place are we going to? You know, because it's like some places, it's like, do we have to? It's a bit boring and there's not much going on. They don't have kids and okay, we, we're going to do it. Uh, other people's place, it's like, hey, we're going to their place for, for lunch. We're like, yes, Why? Why the difference? Because of who's there, who lives there. Well, that's what heaven's like for the Christian, isn't it? It's like, heaven, oh, yes, okay, get me there. Right, that's where Jesus is. That's not the case for an unbeliever. But we can't wait to get there, can we? Verse 24, but to re- Paul says, But to remain in the flesh <clears throat> is more necessary on your account. So dying is gain for him, but it wouldn't be gain for them. But more important that I stay, for you, that wouldn't be a blessing to you. So it's better for me, it's more necessary on your account that I remain in the flesh. Verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So this is what fruitful labor will look like. If I, if I live, fruitful labor for me, what will it be? It will be for your progress and joy in the faith. Okay, so just kind of follow the logic with me. So we'll follow it carefully. To live is Christ. Christ must be honoured in his life. So to live is Christ. Which is paralleled now to live with Christ is fruitful labour. And fruitful labour is for others' progress and joy in the faith. Christ will be honoured. As I live for Him and I make my life about the joy and progress of other people's progress in the faith. So what is faith? How does that work? Well, the nature of faith is that you would rely and you would depend and you would trust in the Lord Jesus. You put your faith in Him. You trust 
in him. You come to him for all your needs. You love him. You rely on him. Well, that inherently honors Christ. And if I want to live for the glory of Christ, I will want other people to join me in trusting him, loving him, worshiping him for their joy and progress in their faith. Paul's saying that is what it means to live for Christ. Um, so here we are. We're all alive, right? That's another thing we all have in common. We're all alive at the moment. And we have the rest of our lives ahead of us. And we all want to live for Christ in a way that honors Him. And I think one thing that Paul's saying is that if you are alive, here's the reason. Do you want to know the reason you're still alive? Paul's saying, if I'm still alive, it's for your joy and progress in the faith. So one of the reasons you are still breathing here this morning is for the blessing, for the joy and progress of the faith of those you can see around you this morning. If you want to live to live Christ? Do that. Do that. Verse 26. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. I'm coming to you again, but the purpose is that you will have so much cause to glory in Christ Jesus. So that's our passage. Let me wrap up real quick. As we look ahead to the rest of our lives, as we consider what it would it be to not waste it, I think John Piper's right, you know. You don't have to know a whole heap of things. You don't have to have mastered a whole heap of things and know a bit about everything in all the world, all the information at our fingertips on the internet. That's a good way to waste your life. A good way to not waste your life is to know and be mastered by a few very important, glorious things and be willing to die for them. And Paul would say, I think, start here. What is your eager expectation and hope in your life? What is it right now? Paul says, I will not be ashamed, but that Christ will be honored in my body, whether I live or whether I die. So for me to live Christ, to die, gain. And I give myself to others' progress and joy in the faith. And that will be an unwasted life. Not a spectacular life. Not a life that the world is going to kind of go, wow, you really got it going on. It's not like an Instagram-worthy life. I have just, just done something for someone else's joy and progress in the faith. Probably won't get posted. Doesn't look that good. Even if you put some, actually, I'm trying to use the words, you know, what do you call it? Filter. Even if you put a filter on it, it won't look that good. But it has eternal things at stake, hey? And it has such deep meaning. Helped someone in their joy, in their progress, in their faith in Jesus. Adoniram Judson lived such a life. Um, he considered death as gain and life spent for the progress and joy in the faith of those who were unreached in Burma. As he went to Burma in 1813, at the age of 25... He also wanted to take Anne with him. He loved Anne. Uh, they weren't married yet, and so he needed to ask for Anne's father for permission that they could get married and she could come with him to Burma. Unreached people in Burma. And so he wrote a letter to Anne's father, and here's what he said. 
I secretly hope I get a letter like this one day. He says this, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home, who died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Saviour from heathens saved through her means, from eternal woe and despair? says, in a sense, are you okay with Anne making to live Christ and to die again with me? For the sake of others' progress and joy in the faith who just have not heard the gospel yet in Burma? He doesn't sell it to him, does he? It's honest, but it's just glorious. And it would not be a wasted life. So here's... Here's my encouragement for us. Make this like a confession in our life. This is my confession. To live Christ and to die will be gain. What a wonderful response to the one who gave his life for us, who died for us, rose again so that we would have new life in him and assured of eternity with him where we will enjoy his presence forevermore. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that though we stumble and though we fall, and who can live up to things like this, that this would be our heart's desire, our heart's contention. We will live Christ. We will die, will be gain. And we will not waste our time, our precious few moments on this earth. And we would get to work in the ordinary things of helping one another for their joy and their progress and their faith in the Lord Jesus. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.